0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I am Adam Powatic. I am sitting here with Aaron Cameron, co-host of the podcast. And our guest today is Sam Mizrahi, president and founder of Mizrahi Developments. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You'd have to be outside of Toronto to not be familiar with Sam. He's had a lot of press in the last while, primarily centered around a humongous development to the corner of Yonge and Bloor, Yonge and Bloor being, you know, the preeminent intersection in all of Toronto has been in the press since about 2014. Does that sound about right? Correct. Um, And most recently just broke ground. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, But for anybody that doesn't know, it's a a billion dollar development over a thousand feet straight up, uh, 85 stories. And they've got some luxury units in there in the 8,000 square foot range. It's you know been the talk of the commercial real estate community for quite a while. So we thought we'd have Sam on to talk about his history and development and leading up to this one, you know, the one. The as one. Is known. Yeah. or A.K.A.
2: the big one, I guess. The big one. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, but before we get there, Sam, why don't we start with how you got into real estate and development in particular?
0: Uh, I started when I was very young in my early 20s and started doing rezoning work and assemblies up in Richmond Hill. And from there, gravitated towards doing more infill type of projects in Toronto, specifically in the custom home low-rise division. So originally, I was doing large land assembly and rezoning work, draft plan approvals and things like mm-hmm. that. And then decided I wanted to really go after my passion, which was architecture, design, form, function, and how that fits into context. So. And did
2: you go to school for this, or how no, did you kind of get self, into it? Self-taught. Self-taught. Great yeah. for you, Good for you. Yeah. Uh, and originally from Toronto, so you're sort of a GTA kid, grown up, born and raised kind of thing. And this has been your home the whole time.
0: No, I uh, was originally born in Iran, okay. Tehran, and uh, immigrated to uh, Canada in 1977. Okay, and uh, I won't
2: up- ask how old you are then, because then we'll get away. <laughs> or, I won't ask how old you were then. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and uh, and then uh, I, I was a young child and basically uh, grew up uh, York Mills and Baby area. And grew up my whole life in Toronto. I lived in California for a couple of years and immigrated back. Neat.
2: And so the passion for real estate was always there?
0: Always. Love it. It's one of those things that, uh, it's my form of art. Yep. So I look at real estate and the buildings we're doing and, and the homes I was doing before. And it's my way of expressing my art. So how did you start with land assembly, right? I
2: mean, that, that takes some equity for sure. It takes some elbow grease too, for sure. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. You know, basically through investor base and uh, raised the capital through uh, investor bases and partners and uh, lenders and looked at areas. You know, all the developments that I bought to date were all off market, so nothing was bought on the public markets or something that was listed for sale.
1: And was that your hard work out there pounding the pavement? Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. I was.
0: I was looking at. You know. You know. The profits always in the buy, and uh, I was looking at specific neighborhoods, specific areas that were underdeveloped, that was missed, that wasn't sort of on the radar screen, or that nobody, you know, there were challenges with the site where other developers or other people didn't really overcome them to to look at them. And then I would target those areas and look at it and then go privately and meet with the individual landowners and purchase them uh, off market.
2: Can, uh, can you give us specific examples? I mean, I, I think our listener base is Probably on the younger side and been all eager in real estate, you know, interested in real estate and want to know how do you kind of you find. Yeah, yeah. And, and, or well, how do sure. you think outside the box? How do you think differently than the other people? Like,
0: well, you know, when I started out, I was doing low rise custom homes to basically learn construction, zoning permits, and start off with one house in Forest Hill on Forest Hill Road. And then from there, went into many homes in Forest Hill and then Lytton Park and then went into multi-unit residential doing townhouses in Toronto, and then from there went into mixed use and the condos that I'm doing now. But when I originally started, I was into the condominium space or in the condominium development world. I was looking at projects where they were too small for the big guys because I didn't have the capital or the financing to compete with you know the major developers who are typically in the high-rise space. But it was too small for the big guys. But too big for the small guy. So I was looking for a niche market where, and nobody was really doing mid-rise boutique buildings mm-hmm. uh, until we came out. What um, what decade was this, just for context? This is 2011, okay. 2010. Okay. College. So
1: not that long ago. Not that long ago. So about eight years ago. But and the market wasn't as frothy as it is now.
0: For Absolutely. It was at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, we were really on the beginning of the crust. And, you know, we came out of 2008, 2009 with the liquidity crisis. It was 2010 now in Toronto. So... The real estate market was just starting to come back after the major liquidity problem of 2009, which Canada sort of dodged a bullet with Mm -hmm. that. And we had, you know, a six-month blip, but then it sort of came back pretty strong. So I started to look at areas where they were mid-rise boutique type of buildings and uh, where I could carve a niche in the market. And nobody was really competing in them Mm -hmm. because nobody was looking at coming and doing nine-story buildings. The big high-rise typical developers were doing, you know, everything north of 20, 30 stories, 40 stories. And the small custom home builders, it was too big doing nine stories. So I looked at that. We did our first project in Yorkville, which was Hazleton and Davenport, and then raised capital, raised financing, lenders, and put it together piece by piece. Met with all the landowners one-on-one, assembled a site, and then did what I had learned uh, back in 1987, 88, 89, which was the rezoning work and the draft mm-hmm. plan approvals and taking it through the process. And that was really You know, when I was in my teens, I was uh, 16, 17, 18 years old when I was doing that and and Mm. learning that and applied that to it and then applied my passion to it, which was really the construction and the architect and the design and the art behind it and grew from there to going from that pendulum swing of the mid-rise buildings to One Bloor Street West, which became the first super tall building in Canada, Mm. being north of 300 meters and creating the tallest building in Canada. Do
2: you want to get right into it then and talk about that building before maybe we go on to other topics? Sure. Well, I think it's probably on everyone's mind. So
1: People people are probably tuning in for that reason. Yeah, sure. So,
2: like, How did the dream start? Or or maybe go start, how did you end up acquiring the land? I mean, let's just start there. And then how did you end up with the idea of building the superstructure?
0: You know, I was developing around the corner in Yorkville on Hazleton Davenport. You know, we've got three developments there that we've, we've done and we're doing. And I was, you know, I walk on Bloor Street often and I look at the retail and I look at High Street Bloor, I mean, Young and Bloor is really the nexus center of Toronto. It's in terms of the intersection, in terms of just the pedestrian count, the vehicular count, the That's subway the intersection. Two, I mean, for those,
2: those that maybe don't know Toronto that well, that is where the two major subway lines intersect. So it really
0: is sort of the middle of the city. It's the artery. It's yeah. two arteries. You know, you have over half a million subway riders that are going through that intersection every every day. And all the corners were developed except the southwest corner. And the Stoleries family owned the site for 114 years, hmm. selling suits and suits uh, and clothing. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a men's clothing store, and for 114 years, they owned the site and sold men'swear out of there. And before that it was the you know, it belonged to the crown, to the queen and, and to Canada. And so I'm the second owner, wow uh, <laughs> on that site uh, since it started. And uh, I looked at it, and it was basically a site that was underdeveloped that was really on the most important intersection in Toronto. I would argue in Canada. Sure. And it wasn't for sale. And in order to make something happen there, you needed more than just that store or that corner of one Bloor Street West. You need to assemble a much larger plate because that store or that property on its own wasn't large enough to do a development, but you needed a number of other properties south of it on Young and west on Bloor. Bloor. So I approached um, the owner of the site and the family and uh, it was Ed Whaley who really uh, was directing mine there in the Stoleries family. And we said, no, it's not for sale. Now, had you approached the adjacent property owners? Not yet. Okay. Because you needed to really, you know, the, what I call sort of the king or the queen on a chess piece was really that corner. And Without that corner, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So you could assemble everything else. And if you don't have the corner, you have no It's useless. Board, right, yeah. it's useless. So I sort of reverse engineered and said, okay, you got to really take control of the corner. And once you have control of the corner... Assembling the properties to the south or west will not be as challenging as that corner would be. And so um, I basically walked in the door and walked upstairs and asked to have a meeting and met with them and turned me down and uh, turned me
1: down several times. What what year was this just for context? This was uh,
0: 2013. Okay. So this is 2013.
1: So this is the same as just the door knocking you were doing? Correct. Just right. a larger so you did, you target. Did, you did yeah, practicing. I, was, I, was, I was
0: practicing door knocking for many
1: years <laughs> <Right>. and, <laughs>
0: okay. uh, and cold calling for many years. Yeah. And this was one of the most significant uh, cold call or door knocking that I'd ever so done. You're so used, you're used to the no then. I'm used to the no. And, yeah. and, and, and you know what? It's about building rapport and it's about timing and it's about the stars aligning. And it's about, you know, today it's a no, tomorrow it's a yes. Today's a yes, tomorrow's a no. It's really, a lot of it happens to do just with the timing of when you ask and what's going on in people's lives at that time. So it's luck. It's happenstance. <laughs> it is luck. Yeah, no, sure. I, would, I, 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 would, I say that half-heartedly, but, but yeah, there's a component for sure. For sure. And I think luck is being in the right place at the right time and knowing what to do. I think when you're lucky, it's being in the right place at the right time, but actually knowing how to seize that opportunity when it presents itself. And then you're lucky. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people can be in the right place in the right time and miss it. And miss it, right? So it's seizing the moment when, when it presents itself. And Or creating the moments that will create the luck. So, uh, yeah, it is. That's a subject. So you were in, you you, you got turned
2: down. and you, How long did you wait to go back? Was it the next day, the next week, the next month? Every day. Every, <laughs> really? Ev- really?
0: Every day, every other day. Uh, to the point where you started up. rolling his eyes like yeah, you again? And, and yeah. uh, basically, we started to build a rapport and build trust. And did uh, you get the sense he was talking to others? Oh hundred percent. Okay. I mean, this was the most coveted corner. Sure. In the so you country. think so you
1: think there's so, there's there's thirty And he
0: told me, he said there's you know there's a line right, of there's right, thirty guys right, talking right, to me. Right. If
1: you own a strip mall in the other squares of town right now, you're talking to a, a broker a week. Right it'll be cold calling. So imagine you. So, the yeah. corner
0: at Young and Bloor. So, yeah. you know, and for decades, every developer in the city was looking at that site and looking to acquire that site. It's one of the most key and one of the most valuable sites mm. in, in the country. So then he said to me, he goes, You know, you know, who are you? And, you know, I wasn't on the map or on any radar at that time. And I'd, you know, done mid-rise buildings around the corner and, you know, I wasn't uh, do as, big th- as Do you think the fact
2: that it was that you, the proponent, like the, the owner and the, the main guy doing it rather than the director of a land assembly that was walking and knocking on the door, do you think that had a component or absolutely helped it?
0: Absolutely. I think when you're dealing at that level with landowners who are, especially when they're emotionally invested, which most landlords are. But in this case, you're talking about 114-year family history, and you're talking about passion that goes beyond money or the sale. It's about passing the torch for them, mm-hmm. right, to the next generation, someone who's going to do. So I think them talking to the principal and principal talking to the principal is very significant in making those deals happen rather than just having a broker go in or having somebody else intermediary. So that played a significant role in building that rapport and that relationship with them, which took nine months to do. Like it was a nine month process from what I would say day one to having a deal done. And then from there I started parallel to doing that assembling to the South and
1: assembling to the West. As fast as you could. Yeah, As fast <laughs> as I could. And, <laughs> and it was, I understand was, that uh, one of the non-monetary parts of the agreement was to have some sort of monument Absolutely. made the stone the original building yeah. in the new development. It was important. It was-, it was important to the family. It was important to me as a respect
0: and to pay tribute to the Stollery family and, and uh, the importance of, legacy of, you know, over 114 years there. And I wanted to make sure, and this was done in the negotiations way before any application or anything came in. I said, I'm going to register this on title so that no matter what in the future, that this monument and the legacy of Stoleries is going to be always there. And And part commemorated. And commemorated and part of the assembly. So I actually went and registered it on title on the day I closed, which was October 20th, 2014.
2: So before we move on to the next stages, during that nine-month sort of courting period... Very emotional. I, I bet. For him and for you too, I'm Absolutely. sure. And and, and I, like, at what point did you start talking about, here's what I'm going to do with the site? Or was that a component? Like, Did Day it matter one, to him that it mattered. you it, wanted to build this, you know, that it was going to be the eye in the sky kind
0: of thing, right? You know, at the time when we were doing it, there was no conversation or no even thought. It wasn't part of the brief or any part of conversation that we're going to go build the tallest building in Canada. That was not even in my mind or in any of the conversations with the family or or Ed, what we were talking about was to create a legacy and to create a building there that was second to none and to do it without any compromises and to create an architecture and a focal point in Toronto that would celebrate Toronto. That's what the conversations were about. And the trust that the family and specifically Ed Whaley put in me was that he knew I wasn't going to compromise on the architecture, on the design. I wasn't going to compromise on the construction because he had seen what I had done on Davenport and Hazleton and the other projects. And that was a main concern for him, that if he's going to pass the torch to the next person, that there would be no compromises. The value system would be aligned with the value system of what the Stoller's family and what his value systems were. And that we would create something that would be a legacy,
1: you know, after 114 years of ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ending, ending a family legacy of 114 years in a country that's only 150 years deep is that's uh, gotta be a big decision. Emotional decision for all the family
0: members, for the Stollery family, for him. I mean, this was their identity, right? This was his identity. And the family's, you know, uh, part of their identity. So it was a significant moral responsibility to undertake.
2: So did did price come into the discussions? I mean, again, based on how emotional the the transaction was, I mean, clearly he wasn't going to give it to you for free just based on the fact that you were going to carry on the legacy. But
0: no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, money is always a factor and price is always a factor. What I realized is I was not the highest bidder. Uh, hmm. there were people that were actually higher than me from what I understood after.
1: Uh, and for anybody that doesn't know, can you say the number that the land cost? Everybody can. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's public yeah. information. Yeah. Uh,
0: my, the total assembly cost me $227 million, $135 million of that was that corner and hmm. the assembly of what the Stollery family. And what's the acreage? Oh, it's 28,000 square feet. Okay. I call it. Yeah. So,
2: so I can't, can't do the math in my head, but it's it's a, a, lot it's of a high hundred. value. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a high value, value per acre. Yeah. And
0: and you know, at the time it was, you know, it's it's a significant purchase, a significant number. And uh, but I knew what the vision was. I knew what we were going to develop mm. there, and I knew that we could command the numbers and the metrics and the fundamentals and the financials would work at over a quarter billion dollars for, right. for just so on you me that.
2: So were there is there similar stories or any challenges for the rest of the assembly? Or did oh, it kind yeah. of just fall like dominoes?
0: No I, no, nothing falls like that. There's nothing easy about this site. I mean, it was um, assembling the rest was challenging, and then of course, you know you had to keep going down, and then you had the person in the middle, and, and eventually everyone starts to figure out what you're doing, even mm. though you're doing it privately, people start to talk, and of course, and prices keep moving up. Yeah.
2: Uh, as if I hold out longer, he's right. got to pay more. Right. And,
0: and so we completed it, we got it done, and I couldn't be more proud of the assembly and the timing all worked. And what I was very fortunate about and very grateful was that timing worked for everybody. Because imagine you got 14 different families, multiple landowners, and different emotions, and you have to have all of this come into concert and work together at the same time because you need to have these simultaneous closings take place or else the lenders and your partners will never lend you the money because they're going to say you don't have contiguous properties. And there's no way I'm going to pay this so, much so, for this So piece. there's the luck component of it, right? There's a lot of, you know, the luck component goes so, it's so deep because it's, you need, you know, you get lucky with one thing, you get lucky at two things, you get lucky at three things, but you have a thousand moving parts that had to come together and synchronize and you needed all the stars to align all on the same date with all the same time frames with everything. So you start to look at that and you go, that's got to be more than luck because all the holes have to line up and there was a lot of them mm-hmm. uh, for it to work. And as I said, multiple sites, multiple different units, 14 different family members amongst, and then have the financing all coordinated, kind of lined up. have all the contiguous properties all line up and do this all. And plus doing this, parallel to that, I'm having conversations with the city. Sure, I'm having conversations with the planning department, conversations with the uh, counselor and everyone else because you're not going to come and your lenders and your investors aren't going to come in and lend you over $227 million and go into a billion dollar project unless, you know, you're sure we can build what we want to build here. Mm -hmm. You're sure you can get the zoning you want to build here. You're sure you're going to have the contiguous properties you're going to build. You know, there's a lot of other auxiliary pressures and factors that come in that you have to line up in order to have a successful closing. It's more than just buying the land. It's, am I able to do what I want to do? Once I do buy the land. Right. And, and have
2: I, the equity or the cash or the financing in place. And that and equity the availability. Yeah. For and sure. that equity and
0: cash and the lenders do their own due diligence parallel to you. Of course. Yeah. And they're making sure, yeah, once you do own the land and I do lend you the money, are you gonna be able to execute the vision and what you're saying? And are you gonna be able to get the approvals and the entitlements that you think you're gonna get?
1: And yeah. how many lenders were involved in order to close the land portion? Originally we had two lenders involved. Okay. And the equity side. How many were involved one. there? One. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's only two equity partners.
0: Okay. So you close you close on all myself and my equity partner, right? You so and you close on all components of the land all on the same day, except one. Okay. And so we had contiguous properties on everything except one. Okay. And the last one closed in uh, January of twenty. It was an outlier or was it the middle? It was the middle. Oh, of course. <laughs> 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 and
1: how much heartburn did that cause at the time? A lot. <laughs> <didn't> it did
2: <laughs> <laughs> A lot. A lot. Did you have it under contract at yes. least at that point? Yes. Okay, so that gave, that gave some comfort to the participants. So you close on that day and now there, there was a news article and you got into a bit of turbulation at this point, sure, right? So sure. why don't you talk us through what happened and,
0: and well, the story there? you know, we spent nine months with discussions with the city and, and everyone, and we you know parallel to the due diligence when we we're closing in 2014. And I think what you're referring to is probably the demolition Correct. of 2015 yeah. that yeah. took place. So if you're going to go demolish a building, there is months of preparation that goes into it. You can't just demo a building on a weekend overnight.
2: You, and, don't, you don't just grab a sledgehammer and show up at 7 right. in the morning. Right. I mean, yeah. you
0: have disconnects of gas, water, hydro. You have to get a demolition permit. You have to submit engineering plans for that. You have to show that, you know, you've done your environmental assessments, that there's no asbestos and, you know, there's no environmental issues with the site or in the buildings. And if there were, you have to have remediation for that. And remove. So, when you think about when you demo something on a commercial site, especially on a corner like Young in the and Blue, right? The middle it's not like Senate, you're in a yeah. you know a house and, up and, north and in the middle of context,
2: nowhere. For context, for uh, context, at the time and, and being sort of an outsider, I think there were a couple news articles out there saying sure. what happened. He closed on this property and and it, all of a sudden it was demolished the next oh, day, yeah, over uh, the overnight. Yeah, and and, and, and uh, wait yeah, a minute, yeah, that yeah. might be a hair to side, And wait a minute, think about the family that owned that property for 114 years, and they kind of painted you as the bad guy, like this right. bad big bad developer showing up with a sledgehammer. That night and just demolishing the building. So,
0: you know, it takes months of planning and applications and approvals to the city. So we applied. We were very transparent that the demolition was going to take place for months before. Mm -hmm. We were very transparent because we were applying for the permits. We applied for the demo permits. We were submitting all of the engineering reports. We were submitting all the environmental reports. We had taken sidewalk protection. We had done everything that was prepping for had the demo. permits and had the, had permits. the city permits and yeah. the city of Toronto issued the permits because we qualified underneath all of the legal requirements to get demolition mm-hmm. permits. And everybody knew the demolition date was starting on that on that Friday weekend. And the reason we picked the weekend to do it was because it would be the least intrusive on the traffic of, of young and blue you're on the busiest intersection in Toronto. You don't want to demo it nine to five, Monday to Friday, and close lanes in of course. on the busiest yeah. intersection, and have everybody be upset that you know you're taking up traffic. And you had no egress from any other location at that no, point. Correct. Right? There yeah. was only one place, and that was the site. So we picked and we planned months in advance to do it on the date or on a on a weekend that would have the lowest impact in terms of upset to Just the disruption, disruption to the flow of vehicles and pedestrians and so forth. Which was in January. It's cold. It's the winter. It's the lowest impact. Most people are on holidays. You don't have the pedestrian count from a safety standpoint on the street walking as you would in any other month or any other, you know, during the week. And we set the date and we, everybody knew that permits were issued, insurance was taken out, everything was done. And the demolition crews were all ready to go and we paid them and, you know, you have to align all of them. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of alignment that needs to take place to do it. And then the week that we're doing it, you get the press and, and you had everyone saying, oh, you know. Uh,
1: and the local councilor being jumped in. Right. You know.
0: And, you know, we want to designate this building as heritage. And we made a point of asking for a year prior to that, is there any heritage designation on this? Is there any heritage value in this? Is there any concern about heritage on this? The answer was no. Right up until after we wrote the check for $227 million and we closed. But right. until then, nobody had any issue. But we went ahead. And we recognized the legacy of Stoleries and we recognized before any of that. And we said, we're going to create a monument and we're going to keep some of the stones and some of the, what I would call architecturally important features of it and incorporate it into the new new building and incorporate as a monument to the new building. Which is also on title. Which Which is on title. And you can't back, you know, you can't backdate that stuff to say you can't fake that. That was done, you know, in October of 2014, way before there was any noise Mm -hmm. about anything about demolition or about heritage or anything like that on the building. So and it was something that we wanted to do, even though everyone said there's no issue with it. And we did. And so we went ahead uh, as planned. Within your rights. Within you our rights. Yeah. And if there was an issue, and if there was really an issue, the city at any time could have canceled the permits. And at any time could have revoked them. And at any time could have, like if there was anything that was, you know, just because you have a permit, it can be terminated. Okay, of course. Yeah. And there were a lot of also people who were very skilled in architecture and very skilled in heritage. You also saw there was no heritage component to the building. Mm-hmm. So we went ahead as planned and did it as of right with the permits and made sure that, you know, before we started on the Friday that there was no issue legally for us to do it or morally uh, yeah. and we asked ourselves and, and the family and so forth and specifically Ed
1: and
2: you know, Well clearly the issues. family knew. The family was of course they had no preconceived notion that and they knew you what were, were
1: gonna, gonna do yeah, it, yeah, right? Right. And so, so open Mizrahi suits in the place of us and continuing. Yeah. So uh
0: we, we went ahead and we did it and we got into a long dialogue afterwards and of course a lot of that, but uh, we did it as of right and we did it, mm-hmm. you know, within the rules and the regulation and the law. And there's no pending lawsuits or any
2: of that kind of stuff Zero.
0: afterwards. So. Zero.
2: So okay, let's keep going. So you now you own the land. Now we own the land. Now you got to go through the whole exercise of, of zoning. Zoning, yeah. And yeah. that was a collaborative process. So, sorry, before you go there, at what point were you thinking, I'm going to build the
0: tallest building in Canada? Still, still not there. Still not there. Okay. So,
1: what, what, what did you envision at that point? I wanted
0: to create new retail on Bloor Street. What I was envisioning at the time was how do we create international retail and allow for international flagship stores to come in? and populate Bloor Street, the way you see Fifth Avenue in New York, Mm. the way you see Michigan Avenue in Chicago, the way you see Avenue de Montaigne in Paris, or, you know, the Champs-Élysées or London. And Toronto is becoming, or I would say is a international city. And so what was to me missing was architecture and retail formats That allowed for international global flagships to come in and plant their flag. And if you look at the architecture on, or the spaces on Bloor street, the vast majority of the spaces are from the Mm sixties, the seventies, they're low rise. They're very cut up. They've got columns, pillars, low ceiling heights. You don't have these open wide span format, high ceilings, no columns no pillars, what I call sort of uncontaminated retail space.
1: They were built in an era when that area was not the destination Correct. it is now. It was, uh, if anything, I mean, slum's the wrong word, but it was definitely considered definitely lower class. And that right. shifted and, at some point.
2: And Yorkville was the party center of the city for a while, right? Correct. It was it was more where you go clubbing, not, Correct. not where you go
0: to buy high-end clothing. Correct. And that transformed through the 80s and through the 90s and 2000. And so Bloor Street became in 2014 high street retail. I would argue even before. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you had Louis Vuitton there, you had Chanel there, you've got, you know, Gucci there, you've got all the high-end international brands. So what I was looking at is how do we create award-winning flagship international retail? How do we design that? And then how do we connect into the subway? How do we have the path connection? You know, you have the subway across the street. How do we create an underground structure to support the retail and residents? And then how do we create a residential structure that, again, complements the retail? The retail complements the residential and it works within the whole community. And so how it came was I was looking for the right architect and I was interviewing many architects. Went to New York, met with Stern in New York, was in Europe. I met with Norman, with Foster and Partners and Norman Foster's firm. And I was interviewing architects in Toronto. And I was looking at somebody who could understand the vision of what I saw there and knew how to execute that vision and how to bring that vision to life based on the conversations I was having, which is, look, I want to build a building that has no columns. No pillars inside. I want to be able to have glass boxes that are like jewelry boxes inside, mm-hmm. have 34 foot ceiling heights, you know, allow the retailer to have a magic wand, whoever that retailer is, to go in there and to create a brand experience for their customers, unlike anything that you know Toronto's or Canada's yeah. ever yeah. seen. And then I want to create vertical retail and put in restaurants and put in hospitality and to put in a place where people congregate. Oh yeah, by the way, I want to have these wide sidewalks. So that, you know, it becomes a congregation point where the city can celebrate and they can walk and you can put the Christmas tree out like the way you do at the Rockefeller Center in the wintertime and then change it and put public art there and fountains. And again, with no structure on the inside. (laughs) So you start to eliminate a lot of- The impossible dream. The impossible dream. And the one architectural firm that understood it and said, wow, I know what you're talking about. And I think I can do that was Norman Foster and Foster and Partners out of London. And they came up with this exoskeleton, hybrid, you know, exoskeleton structure.
1: Yeah, we'll put, um, we'll put a link on the, the show notes to images of the design. It's pretty remarkable. Obviously, it doesn't translate well in the audio format we're doing sure. right now, but we'll put them up there because it's well, worth seeing. It's, yeah,
0: I mean, exoskeleton, basically yeah. saying is instead of taking the engineering and the structural engineering and putting on the inside of the building, which is what it is with 99% yeah. of buildings, yeah. we're going to put the structural engineering elements on the outside of the building. So it's like the reverse. It's like having your bones on the outside, outside. rather than sure. the inside. And then I wanted large ceiling heights. So I wanted very high 18 foot ceilings for the rest of the retail. And then as you start to dream this and you start to envision this and sort of blue sky it, and I was taking trips back and forth to London, to England, to Riverwalk, which is where Foster is. And we started to envision this before you know it, you're at a thousand five feet, you know, and you're at, and why? Because you have these large ceiling heights on the ground floor, 34 feet on the podium. You have 18 foot ceiling heights from that point on going up on the retail six seven. Stories, and then you have 10, 11 foot ceiling heights for your residential floors going up. And I said, You know, I want to have 416 units. And they're like, Why 416? I said, It's the area code of Toronto 416. Mm. And you start to put that into place. And before you know it, you're at 306 meters, you know, and then becomes the tallest building in Canada. But it wasn't the brief. It wasn't. Interesting. It just so that was, never the, that was never the objective. <laughs> never it was just, I wasn't I even thinking that no, way. No, of course. It just, I was it coming just, from nine-story, 12-story buildings. You right, know, it sure. was just, it just happened to. So it was a byproduct of design. It was a byproduct of, a sudden, of design. And then yeah. when you end up putting in all of the ingredients that you need to make the vision, you
1: end up there. Neat. If we can talk about the retail for a second, we've actually discussed that numerous times in this podcast because you are talking about seven stories of retail in a country where that is not the norm. Obviously, many cities in Asia have that same format and it's very successful there. Was that part of the vision you had for the seven? Absolutely. It has
2: not been successful here too, I mean, as the caveat, right? People have struggled converting that to
0: a successful business model. You know, it's very normal in Asia. It's very normal in Europe. Even New York has it you know, you look at the H&M building in New York, it's multi-story. You look at many of the retail stores on Fifth Avenue, they're multi-story. They're, you know, four, five, six stories. Nobody had ever developed it or built it in Canada. And, you know, when I looked at this, I said, you know, let's create this vertical retail because it's the corner. It can support it. It has been done in Europe, and Asia, Hong Kong, Japan, UK, everywhere, yeah, everywhere else. else. Every major, and, every major center. So why can't we do it? And we did. The vertical retail actually even grew because- Originally, our podium was six stories of retail. And our retail is now, uh, our commercial is actually close to 14 levels because we ended up, you know, we have a flagship anchor tenant on the ground floor and the concourse. Uh, It's rumored to be Apple. I can't, I can't, I I don't comment on rumors. (laughs) I can't, I don't comment on rumors. Um, So, you know, we have a flagship anchor tenant that takes up the ground floor and the concourse. And then we have two floors of restaurants, which are going to be award-winning global restaurants. So that's Uh,
1: second and third
0: story. Correct. Okay. And then you have an event space that'll be for events, corporate functions. Weddings. Weddings, weddings, all that sort of thing. What uh, what kind of capacity do you envision for that? Uh, 600.
1: Okay, Uh, so that's sizable.
0: Yeah, 600. And uh, 600 people. And then from there, we have an arrival area, again, for the retail and amenities and, and so forth. And then we have 10 floors Again, part of the commercial, which will become a hotel. Oh, wow. Okay. Which will be a 175-room hotel that uh, will own and operate as well.
1: And Uh, under what flag? Or is that not settled yet?
0: uh, So we're creating a lifestyle boutique, again, with the same value system of the building and what we do and so forth. So it'll be a boutique lifestyle feel where you have all your amenities, you have anything you need. You know, there'll be spa services in there, valet parking, concierge, uh, all of those factors all built into the building. That'll be part of what we. And so
2: you've titled those off as, as the retail component, right? A hotel hospitality component, and then the condo. And then the, the condo starts,
0: right? The res starts on floor nineteen. Okay. So now you're already, you know. And are you are your is your intention to
2: sell out the hospitality
0: and the retail? Or is that no, so that we you're keep. Gonna, it. You're going to hold on. Yeah, to we're going to okay. hold on. So Neat. So we'll own that and uh, continue to operate it, and then the residential gets sold off from floor 19 right, up right. to
2: 85. Uh, so let's go back a step a little bit. Yep. You, now you've got the design, you've got the architect, you've just kind of discovered kind of organically yes. that you're going to build this huge, this tallest building in Canada. Now you got to go to the city.
0: Now you got to go to the city. And the city, you know, was very helpful and receptive. But the way we did it was we started to work with the ratepayers associations, the community organizations. And throughout the whole process, we always had transparency with the community, the neighborhood, the ratepayers association, the planning department, the counselor. And we started these working group meetings, which I give a lot of credit to the counselor as well, to Kristen Wong Tam with this, because we started these working group meetings that took a year and a half. And basically we would collaborate with all the stakeholders who wanted to be part of the working group meetings, who had a stake in this corner and had an interest. And we started to design the building with them and with our architects. And listen to the concerns, listen to what the issues were, what the challenges are. And we did a year and a half of listening. And basically after a year and a half of listening, the evolution of the building really changed over a year and a half based on those conversations, based on what the concerns were of the community, the city, the planning department, stakeholders. And the building that came out of it was actually a much better building than... Mm what I originally went in
2: with. Is there one particular item that you can say came out of it that you're the most proud of or the most
0: surprised about? Yeah, the retail and the commercial is actually larger than it was when I first went in on the vertical retail. You know, Because the podium actually got reduced from 61 meters to 31 meters on the retail podium. But we ended up having a commercial component in it now with the hospitality, which is very important. So it actually proves the vertical retail and the vertical commercial works Hmm. because we're fully leased. So one, you know, we became fully leased in that same time period, which is incredible because it gives you the market reception and Mm -hmm. affirmation that the retail
2: works. When's the completion date? When's the? Uh,
1: 2022, 2023. Right, so five years in advance, years, six right. years, yeah, right. right. In but is it earlier right. for the retail component specifically?
0: Right. So the retail will be operational um, basically four years from now.
1: Okay, which right. adds a great bit of excitement to the project as a whole to have that grand opening. And then the So think real real grand of grand you know
0: 2022 being the retail component, and then 2023. Uh, so and the the residential will continue to build while the retail is open. Right. That um, include the the hospitality. That includes the hospitality. Okay. So we got a prelease before we had the market confirmation of that. The city was fantastic to work with because of the fact that we actually got a better building out of it going through a year and a half consultation process. You know, everybody looks at these things and they look at the negative and they go, I can't believe it's a year and a half. But if you look at it from the day I bought the property, which is October 20th, 2014 to the day we started construction, it was three years. So in three years, we zoned the building, went through an OMB process, had no appellants at the OMB, settled all the issues, all with the rape, with everyone Got the approvals, got the permits, got the building permits, fully leased the site out, and started pre-sales. And you're building the tallest building in Canada, the most complicated building in Canada with the exoskeleton and structural engineering to it, all within 36 months, and started construction. So you look at it, the timeline is actually super fast for a project of this magnitude. Sam doesn't sleep, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, everyone says, you know, how do you sleep at nights? I, I, <laughs> I, I actually, I actually sleep very well at nights. <laughs> it's when I'm awake that I'm worried. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, you know, the process that we went through was actually. I look at, you know, when I look at the challenges, I don't look at the problems in those challenges. I look at what the benefits of those challenges bring you. Mm-hmm and the process gave us a better building.
2: So in that 36 month period was there ever a moment where you thought oh, I'm never going to get this done? Like why did I get into this? Were there were there moments where you just thought this this is never going to work?
0: There were many challenges and there were many moments where if you looked at the issues and the problems they all were herculean mm-hmm. each one of them and you know
2: anything in particular?
0: Uh, just you know from the day I started on the closing with the demolition issues to the noise of that to the challenges that came with entitling it, the challenges that came out with a lot of the noise that had to do with everything, it, it, it you know, it's nothing, there was nothing easy about it, Sure, but you weren't under the radar. I wasn't under, you, you know, know, your, your, yeah, your, yeah. your head's really that, on a total That, makes, pole that right. makes it harder for sure. And so, you know, and you're, you're really out there and you put your head out there because you're, you know, on a very important corner and it's a very public corner. And if and you're,
2: if you're a Torontonian, you've got, you've got memories of that corner in correct. one way or another, and you, you feel like you're invested in it. So I, you know, correct. you totally so, get
0: that. So failure is not an option. Like even though, yeah, there was many different things, but I never allowed that to, what I'd say snuff at, you know, to sort of extinguish the end goal, which is we got to, you know, we got to get this across. I just had too many responsibilities to too many people and failing at it or not taking it across the finish line was just not an option. It was just, um, it's too important, too significant. And I took the responsibility on, I knew somewhat what I was getting into when I started it, but when not, you
2: knocked on that first door. Yeah. But I didn't
0: realize really, you know, um, everything that I went through, you know, if, I, I think it, it, most people say, if you would have known, if most people knew what the challenges were before you start, most people just wouldn't do it. And, yeah, and I think a lot of people didn't do it because a lot of people were so experienced in knowing what those challenges are. They said, forget <laughs> so it. I don't your, want to it's do it. It's
2: your ignorance that got <laughs> you here. You know, some, to, yeah. I
0: think, you know, to some <laughs> degree, it, I think it really allows you to take risks that most people don't because of the fact that you don't see it. Or you feel you, you can't you have, you can yeah, sure. have confidence too. You believed in yourself.
1: Uh, if, if Ed Whaley had said no that last time instead of a yes, would you have just continued on with a nine and 10 story mid-rise projects? Or would you have absolutely. sought
0: another large project? No, absolutely. Because, you know, I went to Ottawa and I did approach. I'm doing a project in Ottawa on a very important corner in Ottawa and, you know, on a gateway site in Westboro, which is Island Park Drive in Wellington. And that's a 12 story site. So if Ed Whaley had said no, I think, yeah, probably I still would be doing a lot of mid sites. But I think that yes, and what we've done has opened my eyes to a very different world. And the experience in the last three years has, you know, sort of uh, broadened that vision. And, you know, you see the world very differently and the city very differently. And a lot of things that you think are not possible are possible. It's just, you know, you need a lot of right factors to align themselves to make it happen.
1: It must have opened other opportunities because um, you're well known in the development community prior to that. But this put your name out there to virtually everybody in the city. There's been a lot of press coverage at virtually every step of the way for this project. Mostly positive, the only negative, yeah. of course, being the uh, the demolition. But that must have opened other opportunities as well. People know you from that project. Absolutely.
0: I think it instills a lot of confidence. And, you know, they saw the execution that took place and the challenges that came with it and the overcoming those challenges and, ex- and still executing and getting it done. Yeah,
2: execution. Me. I mean, that's, that's- Item number one, right? Yeah. For developers and and, and, and for you, lenders. And well, for, that, maybe that's a good segue into the question about lending. You know, execution is so important to lenders and the ability to prove that you can do it and you've done it in the past. And so, how did you go about now if at this point? You've got the land, you've got the zoning. Now you need to basically engineer financing.
0: Yeah. The, the financial engineering to do something of this magnitude of a billion plus building is, is very complex and it really has never been done before. There are many developers and many developments that are billion plus developments, but they're Spread over multi towers. You know, there's two, three, four towers in the phases, and it hits that. To do it on one single piece of property on one tower was, again, a very challenging and and a Herculean task to do. And
2: uh, so where did you start? I mean, I, I, I'm, you don't walk into a bank and say, Hey, I need, I need a million bucks, right? Like what? No, where did I you need, a, I need a billion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did you start? I mean, I guess maybe you had some, you had already land financing on yeah, there. We, we had right? land
0: financing on there. And so it's really the key pieces came to restructuring that land financing and getting into construction financing where, you know, you needed more of a you know, there are different components to it. So the land financing is different than the construction. Construction is different than land. And so I was doing is putting components of financing in. And instead of doing it typically where you have one umbrella in a typical condo building, you have one bank in there. They may syndicate it within sure. their own groups, uh, depending on the lending limit, because, you know, generally the lending limit is about 100 million in Canada. So anything over 100 million, the Schedule A and, and B and C banks syndicate the loan. So when you're talking about a billion-plus building, you know you would need more than ten banks. Sure, uh, there's only
1: the big fives so that causes right. problems, right? Yeah. And, and you need
0: <laughs> so you'd need ten of them or eight of them to come together. It's very hard to do. So what I decided to do is to break it down into smaller pieces, and I said, you know what, it's going to be extremely challenging to do that. It may not even be
2: it might be, be possible. Yeah, right.
0: Sure. So why don't I break it down and say, okay, we're going to do a tier of land financing we're going to do a second tier, which will be MES financing. And we're going to do a third tier, which will be construction financing. And we're going to have to make sure that all of these components work together and create a syndicate in a way where they allow for these multiple registrations and mortgages to get registered on title and have them work together. Because usually when you have one registration or a mortgage on title, they say, well, I don't want anybody else in front of me. I don't want anybody else behind me. So you had to find lenders that would work together understanding the overall picture of what I was trying to do and allow for subsequent registrations sure. and mortgages on title so, with, you know, three, four, five different lenders to come together.
2: How finite was your budget at this point? I it's mean, pretty had, you, had, you, had you, pretty, you more or less settled on on the final cost, yeah. more or less. Yeah. So you knew when you were walking into these these, these finance shops or, I mean, did you use a broker? Maybe that's a good question.
0: No, there's- uh, You did it all uh, yourself. We, yeah, we, we did it and it was basically um, finding the right team. So you knew what you needed at this point it wasn't say hey it wasn't how much not you give me. No yeah, it's not sure. it's not a yeah, conventional you know sure. there was nothing conventional yeah. about this. I mean I, you know I laugh sometimes when I think about it you know the assembly was not conventional the building's not conventional so why should the financial of engineer be yeah. yeah. conventional. And so everything about it was unique and it was a first to financially engineer something where we got all the lenders to work together and get all the lenders to allow for all these registration and mortgages of first, second, thirds and fourths all coming together and symbiotically working together to allow the project to be built. Keep going, yeah. yeah. And did, so, I
1: mean, and you probably had a number. Total would be the question, yeah?
2: Yeah, I was going to ask. But you probably had a number in mind, and, and I'm, maybe you can share that. Or you don't sure. have to if you don't want to, but, you know, often I'm, I'm sure with a lot of our clients, and it happens, I think it's just everywhere, every lender, you might have a number in mind, but the bank may not get to that number. And all of right. a sudden, now you're like, okay, wait a minute, now I've got to come and find additional equity. So did you have that moment where you had to turn backwards and say, okay, partners... I need an extra whatever it is from you to, to make this happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was always the hole to fill and to think, okay, we're going to, you know, we need X dollars and you only get Y dollars and you're going to have to go backfill that delta. And I can tell you that that happened throughout the project and we were successful at, at backfilling that because as I was moving the project forward, the risk in the project was de-risking. So, the risk from day one when we first bought the project and we didn't have the zoning, we didn't have the entitlements, I didn't have leases in place, I didn't have the anchor flag, I didn't have the contiguous properties. Sure. I didn't so, it have became
2: the easier and easier to say, hey, do you want to participate?
0: Well, yeah. you, you're, you're mitigating execution risk. Yeah. And as the project matured, so in a way, I was very lucky because some of the delays of getting the entitlements and the zoning allowed for the time to work to get the leases in place. Right. And it allowed for the time to get the financial engineering in place. So I looked at sort of every problem that would, you know, at the time you would look at and say, oh, I can't believe I'm having this problem. But it was actually a blessing in disguise. Because those issues or those problems or those delays actually allowed the time for other stars to align. Right. To quell the concern. Right. right, and yep. to deal with it. So it, it turned out to be a benefit.
2: So can you tell us what the
0: total pop was?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's just over a billion. And how... how uh how many, how many lenders? Yeah, how many participants?
0: Well, we deal with groups or what I would say sort of like a fund, and then they have participants in them. In so that, okay. I don't know how many are right. in each one oh, of okay. those. But if you look at it from my level of how many, partic- or how many funds Comp- are in their components that I deal with, because I may deal with one or two people in the fund. Right, but they no, might I have that. Sure, sure. Out. So you're looking at um, uh, one six. So it's sort of six tranches
2: of yeah. financing all the way through. Yeah. Brilliant. It might be multiple groups within each trench doing that. Yeah, for sure. I I imagine there would be at that number. Six.
0: So you're in the ground now. Yeah. We started excavation, shoring, yeah, everything.
1: We saw the photo with John Tory, the uh, the mayor of Toronto, of course, or anybody doesn't know. Very proud of that day. Uh, I mean, to have
0: the mayor there and and planning department and the lenders there and uh, everybody that was a a stakeholder to make the... uh, vision of reality was a very proud moment. And, and I think it, it was great to celebrate from the city because we broke ground on something that was very significant and meaningful to the city.
2: One of my questions would be, you know, some of the logistics now of building this thing at that location, you know, one of the busiest locations in the country. There are certain times in the development where you need to have a row of 25 cement trucks lined up, ready to go. Like, have you worked through that? Yes. I mean, you must have already yes. you know, met with your GCs and figured out how so, you're going to do that. Yeah,
0: we're self-performing. So right. we're, I'm actually building the oh, building. Okay. Um, we spent with our team, three years, actually really more year and a half of real details of the logistics of how we're going to build this. And again, nobody had ever built a building this tall. That so, tall. It, right. And then so everybody was that, saying,
2: okay, get somebody. Sure. If you're building it that tall in Vaughan, it might be easier. Because right. you, you got land and, and you your, got, you know, a yeah.
0: lot of open space. You're young and blue. You have no space. And logistically, everything is just in time. So we use the just in time model to do, you know, how we're going to line up the, the concrete, how we're going to line up the trucks where they're going to be stating just in time coming in doing the offloads and so forth like that. I also, you know, generated space with putting what I had seen in Europe of these containers. So if you look now in Young and Bluer and you look at the construction some of the construction site offices that we did and the hoarding that we use are actual sea containers that we converted into offices and into places for the trades to be able to operate and work out of. And which there, are, they, first, are they stacked? They're stacked. Right. And I'd seen that in Europe. I'd seen that in London. And nobody had done that in Canada before that I'd seen, and specifically not in Toronto. And this is now a first number everyone's saying, oh, you know. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. Look at these. Yeah. And so we started doing that. But you've got a very tight site. You're on a very busy intersection. You have a very high vehicular pedestrian count.
1: No uh, rear access no, or ar- anything. Yeah, we, we do. Always. We have rear access
0: off of Balmudo, and it's comes okay. in. And laneways, but, uh, and you're building the tallest building in Canada and you're on a timeline to get it done. So are you,
2: are you taking up lanes?
0: Uh, yeah, we have one lane on uh, a blur and and a partial lane on young. Okay. And we're using state of the art jump system. So, uh, there's a lot of technology that's going into this building in Canada that are amongst the first ever, you know, done in Canada, but it's been done in New York, been done in Europe and done in Asia. But nobody had done it because nobody had needed to do it. So what does that mean? What does that entail? So you're using the elevator core and the actual core and and the elevators to actually build the building as you go up. So think of it like Lego. Hmm. You're actually building it like Lego coming up and using the core and the elevators to actually jump the building up as you go up. we conventionally, you don't do that. Wow. We're also not using fly forms. We're using a, you know this jump system, which again accelerates things. And we're building the, the retail podium first and then building the super tower on top of that using the roof of the retail podium to become sort of ground zero as a staging as a staging area as we as we do so there's a very lot of complex and very unique technology going in in terms of how we're doing it and uh we're quite proud of it. And so this, is it. this the, the best part? Like, are you, do you feel like, okay, the
2: hard part's behind me. Now I can no. have the fun part? Or <laughs> no. is this the worst part? I'm scared part? to think Well, digging, that. digging <laughs> down, I know. Like, you you got to keep digging. I know that that's 80% of the risk, right, is yeah. going down. It's underground. For, well, it's, the yeah. underground has got a
0: huge risk because yeah. you don't know, what, you know. And how far how far you're far are you You're only going down four stories, right? We're going down 23 meters. And how far are you today? We're shoring and piling and doing the tiebacks right now. Okay. So uh, we haven't yet really excavated right, yet we're right. still putting in the caisson wall and the waterproofing membranes and so and then we'll start to dig but we're going down 23 meters you know so it's uh, and then but then our mega piles and our footings go down 140 feet so we're going to bedrock so we're actually going down very deep, really deep. To, to bedrock and bedrock there is about 140 feet
1: and that's so, where you're worried you might get a rude surprise you <laughs> yeah. know
0: you just don't know so we've done our, all of our geotech reports and so forth everything looks good but again you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you're gonna, uh, you know, you don't know what unforeseen issues oh, yeah, are going to so come. And how, how deep
1: are. of surrounding buildings gone? Not as deep as us. Okay.
0: Uh, so so <laughs> yeah,
1: for context, I mean, there's one immediately across,
2: young from you. And how correct. tall is that building? Uh,
0: Seventy-five stories. Um, uh, the height is, um, I can't recall exactly off the top of my head right. to be exact. But, but it's, so it's, you it's would that. suspect
2: that they would have probably discovered something, you know, underground rivers mm-hmm. or whatever it may be that really might correct might scuttle the development. But correct but you never know it's a different site
0: yeah right? you just you just don't know and 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 time changes and water flows change and you can predict all you want and you may not end up with it so we're keeping our fingers crossed and you know we just do it and whatever challenge comes up we'll have to deal with it i mean you know we we got a great team and we have got great engineers and consultants and we'll uh, figure it out
2: so when do you go few when do you go? I think okay. when
0: I think when we open the building.
2: Oh yeah. It's all <laughs> end, it's, I think yeah. until then I just until you just, cut a, until you cut a ribbon. is, yeah, is I
0: I you know the experience I've had in the last three years has just been you just can't say few and you can't you know you can't hang your hat until you finished it because there's so many unforeseen challenges that can come up that I can't even think of. Yeah. Well, you and if and, you could you would right. right? And yeah. so all I can do is just execute and mitigate execution risk as it goes and whatever challenge presents itself, uh, mm-hmm. figure it out. And that's been really the story of my life. <laughs> right, just figure it out. Yeah.
1: And I, I know you're pretty early on in the actual development phase or the building phase, but you are on schedule and where you want to be? Yeah, we're yeah. Uh, actually four days ahead of schedule right now. Perfect. So we're we're in a very good place.
0: <laughs>
2: and only a couple thousand days to go, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Correct.
1: <laughs> Correct. In terms of the the condos, yeah. what's the price per square foot that you're they started at twelve hundred dollars a square foot okay. and then went up to uh over three thousand. And would that be for the luxury units?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're all really super luxury. It just depends on which floor you're on and and your views and so forth like that. The building's blend average is over 1,900 a foot, uh, starting wow. at 1,200 and going to 3,000. And it's a one-of-a-kind building. The finishes are one-of-a-kind. Uh, it's very super high-end. There's really no upgrades because we're putting in top of the line on everything. Right. What
2: what variety of unit suites, unit mix? We have everything.
0: Yeah. So we have, uh, really, you can come in and custom design your unit. So if we don't have a unit that is palatable to you, you can change it and design it. And that's been one of our significant marketing uh, and and what we've done in our previous buildings is allow the homeowner to really design their own units and have a customized view on how it is because it's your home. So we don't do a formula built or a cookie cutter where you have four plans and this is it and you got to pick one of the four and you can't change anything. We allow really ultimate flexibility in the building and in the unit uh, mixes and suites that you could really you
2: know, sort of something run. like from a four hundred square foot up sure. to like someone said six thousand. So
1: yeah. Yeah. I can I can actually uh, attest to that. I was in one of your previous developments over the Christmas holidays, and that unit was I think thirty five hundred square feet, but included a walk in. Well, you say wine cellar, but of course you're you know above ground. But a wine room, they'd be the size of a size of a very small condo. And I got to think that that was not off of a design plan provided to everybody. No, that's a that's very a, unique yeah, building. That's,
0: that's a great um, example. Um, you know, That's our building at 181 Davenport in Yorkville. I, I know, because I know all the suites and what, what they've done. And that's one of the units there. And basically, um, it's custom design. And each homeowner has ability to create a custom home. So you want to put a wine cellar in or a wine room in. You want to have it two stories, we can make it two stories. You want to create uh, a media room, we can do that. Uh, We've had basically every customized requirement all the way to a basketball court Hmm. in one of our buildings that the homeowner wanted.
2: And where are you on your pre-sales now? We're opening Saturday. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh,
0: we open Saturday, January 13th and uh, open to the public and we'll start. Are uh, you taking a suite? I am. Of course, of course, you kind of have to. I think you have to. Yeah. Well, you know, for uh, for me, it's um, there's only one building like this. There's only one address, and you know, I looked at it and I said, I'm, you know, I I can't replicate this ever again. You know, everyone, you know, asked me, you know, what do you do after this, and I, you know, I, I don't know how to actually replicate this again because. There's very few places that you can in in Toronto or in Canada that you can do something like this. And so I I made a point of uh, absolutely purchasing one of the units because it's one of a kind. And uh, I know know I'd
1: regret it afterwards. Oh, yeah, of course you would. I read online that there was at the time 3,000 people pre registered for 416 units, probably more now. So I imagine you're going to get through the sales process pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean we're you know we're optimistic. We've got a very good list uh, of registrants, and there's been a very good following and so forth leading up to it. We're excited to open up this Saturday on the weekend and see what the velocity and the traction is, and uh, and and go from there. But I'm very confident that we're you know we created something for the market that's one of a kind. It allows the market to uh, or the homeowner to be able to customize their suite and their home in a way that you know you can't really do in any other building. You're on the subway line, you're connected to it. You've got the you know, the high street retail, uh, you can walk to cinemas, you can walk to restaurants, you can walk to the museums, you can walk to the university.
1: You've got the hospitals right there. It's basically everything that you would want. So, in the top 10 stories, a, a guaranteed unimpeded view for the long term, <laughs> foreseeable well, future. I, you know, it's, it's
0: interesting because Young and Bloor sits sort of on a pedestal, and Young Street going south goes to the lake, goes down. So, the topography is sort of like the buildings on a pedestal. So, even if other buildings are anything that are being built south, you're sort of higher up on the ground. And we took a drone and we sort of shot actual view shots of every floor. So when you come into the sales gallery or you go on the websites, once we uh, have the website go live on the weekend and you pick a unit hmm. uh, on whatever floor, you can actually select view shot and it'll give you the actual view shot of, of what it would be like, of what it would be like and what the unit is and what in a three sixty in a 360 degree. view. Yeah. And so the views are majestic. You know, you have really um, unobscured, uh, vision, you know, going down south, north, east, west once you get past uh, a certain height and and I think those would stay for um, for a very long time because you know even if other buildings were built around them, you know you, you have these panoramic views where you're still going to see around them and through them, sure. so but uh, over them and over mm-hmm. them. so uh,
1: they're great. And are you expecting a large number of uh, foreign buyers just given that these units are not meant for? people fresh out of university to buy as a starter and the buyer pool for these kinds of things. It's uh, definitely the upper stratosphere. So what do you envision there? You know, if I look at our
0: registration list, we you know, our registration list right now is over 4,500. And it's interesting because 99% of that registration list is local. So everyone was thinking, you know, we're going to have this huge foreign buyer group that's going to come in or the international buyer group. And based on the registration list to date, it's less than 1% as being, hmm. Foreign, Uh, it's all local, and there are previous buildings. We have no foreigners. Like there's no foreign buyers in them. They're all local Canadian residents that that purchase them. So this building's different. I don't know. Uh, It's a much larger building. I think it's going to attract from everyone. I think it's sort of like the UN building. Yeah. Yeah, in that sense,
2: is the objective to sell out as quickly as possible, or do you no. kind of have a sense you're going to do it in stages, just given the fact that you've got a number of years until you actually yeah. you come to market, we, we, and, and we, you're hoping or assuming that the condo prices are going to continue to rise? You
0: know, I, I, I we're we're no rush. I mean, the retail's fully leased. We we're under construction. We, you know, we price the building very well in terms of value uh, where it is today, given the fact of where it'll be. You know, when the building's finished in, in five years. And so, um, you know, we're not in any, in any rush. And I think there's great value for the homeowner that's buying today, a home that's on a very important corner in a building. That's sort of one of a kind mm-hmm. that's five years out and uh, real estate pricing, you know, if you look at it historically over time is the, you know, one of the asset classes that continuously grows over time. Mm. So, um, I think it's a great investment regardless.
1: So, and it has another question. Are you expecting people to buy it as an investment, not necessarily just to live?
0: Sure. I I would expect that because I think it's, um, I think it's one of those buildings that you want to own and have a part of, and even if you know, and it's a great place uh, to invest because of the rental market that's there as well. It really hits every spectrum of the buyer pool and living pool. You know, uh, from everyone. I mean, there's not a. I look at it and I want to live there. So,
1: which floor are you going to be on? One of the higher floors. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: one of the ones with
2: the unimpeded views for sure. Yeah.
1: I think, I mean, it kind of brings us up to to where we are today with that development. I mean, it's, it's super fascinating and we definitely appreciate you know, hearing the story. In terms of outside of the one, what have you got in the go that uh, it's kind of making, you know, is interesting you today? You mentioned Ottawa. Yeah. So Ottawa,
0: you know, capital city of Canada, incredible architecture in Ottawa. You've got some of the most incredible architectural buildings in Canada. You look at the parliament buildings, you look at the Supreme Court building that was built, you look at the art galleries that are being built in the National War Museum and everything else. And, and we've got some of the most important, significant architectural buildings in Canada in the capital. And one of the things I, I noticed there is that nobody had really done super high-end or ultra-luxury mixed-use buildings there. And I looked at it, you know, I traveled back and forth there a lot. And I said, you know, the city, the capital of Canada, we need to create a, a landmark residential building here that complements sort of the architecture of what we see in the government buildings. And so I was looking for, again, a uh, land assembly and, and, and an important corner and assembled uh, a very important gateway site known as Island Park drive, which for those about Ottawa, that's a very important artery and a very important Avenue. That's a gateway into Ottawa. And it's on the corner of Island Park drive and, and Wellington street West known as the Westboro, which is again, a neighborhood that in Ottawa is one of the most coveted neighborhoods to live in now. And it's won a number of awards recently as being the best neighborhood and, and, and so forth. So we went and, um, uh, Toronto based architectural firm, and we looked at many different architectural firms and, and we used page and steel and we created a landmark building that actually got a landmark designation from the urban review design panel, uh, of architects and so forth in Ottawa. And, And we won best condo project of 2017 by our peer group. There. Now, is that complete yet, or you're, no, you're still uh, in we're, under construction? We're, we're in pre-sales right okay. now. Okay, so we just launched that now, uh, recently.
2: And what on and a per square foot basis are you are you targeting on there? Uh,
0: nine hundred. Okay, nine hundred dollars, which would be That's would, top of market. For yeah, that must be Ottawa. top of
2: market for Ottawa. It I is. Mean, I, I wouldn't imagine anything more than seven hundred in that in that neighborhood. It is. It
0: is. And um, but it's a very unique building, right. very unique Clearly. intersection, and it's very it's the same value system and and similar to the buildings we built in Yorkville on, um, you know, the building that you mentioned that you went into that had the wine room. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, again, custom design, very high-end finishes, uh, very high-end architecture, limestone. And Ottawa is a venture for us because it it really allows for the art of what we're doing and to show that it's portable. And taking it to Ottawa in the capital of Canada and creating a a destination landmark building, I think was very important because, again, I, I hope that it inspires others to do the same there. And, right, uh, and I'm still looking at new opportunities and different areas. Yeah, where right
2: would now. you where would you go next if, if it's
0: not Toronto and Ottawa in Canada, you're, you're or, to? or or globally? I, you if, know, you to, if you
2: want if you want, if you have a, a you know
0: aspirations I, of going outside, I like Vancouver a sure. lot. Um, uh, I, I think Canada has incredible opportunities still, and uh, you know you look at the immigration and you look at the growth that Canada's experienced over the last economic strength. Economic yeah. strength. I mean, Toronto is really the best place. In North America right now, from a real estate standpoint, there's more cranes in Toronto than anywhere else in North America, and
2: and has been for <clears throat> years and years. Right absolutely. now, absolutely,
0: and we have a very robust economy, very strong, and uh, and the economics are just growing. So I I would still focus in Canada and and look at um, areas and developments outside of Toronto. I mean, I, there, I like a lot of the cities and a lot of the areas outside the GTA, and I think they're all growing, and there's
1: a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. still to do things. We always like to end off the you know, the guest portion of the podcast by asking our new question for 2018, and with you, the answer probably will be more obvious than other people we've asked it of. But if you had to invest in only one asset class in only one market in Canada, what would it be? I've done it.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. Uh, you, you walked it's, the it's, walk. It's no, it, it's it's real estate, and um, and I'll tell you the reason why. It's it's tangible. I mean. It's one of the asset classes that, you know, it doesn't have an expiry date. It's not trendy. It grows over time. If you need cash from it, you can leverage it. You can, you don't need to sell it to, you know, you can always put a mortgage on it. You can always finance it and you can come back later and pay it off. You can, and still maintain it. And it still grows from a capital appreciation standpoint. And I find that it's one of also uh, the easiest things to finance in terms of, you know, you look at businesses and other you know, mm-hmm. industries that I've been in before because it's a tangible asset. But I think Toronto's real estate is uh, really the best asset class. Uh, to would best it would
2: store. have been interesting if you said industrial in Edmonton or something <laughs> yeah. like that.
1: I'm pretty bullish on You're Trump in the wrong in business, man. Yeah. 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 You definitely announced your, announced your uh, proclamation. I'm, bu- <laughs> I'm biased <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> Uh, to end it off, we've got a news story. We also like to share a news story. And this one kind of bodes well with what Sam was just talking about. This is from the Real Estate News Exchange. And is a good year in store for CRE in 2018. This is according to Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, the demand for commercial real estate from domestic and international investors will remain robust through next year. I don't think that's surprising you know, to anybody in the room. Uh, the two constraints they cited, one is availability of product which kind of speaks to what you were saying about trying to find uh, sites is difficult. It's getting challenging. And that's true. I think of every asset class, uh, whether you're talking about development or, or built product. Uh, and the other one is a little more relevant to Aaron's of my specialty is rising interest rates does pose a risk despite the strong fundamentals across multiple sectors. Obviously last year there was two interest rate hikes and it's more expected this year, but um, you know, at this point I got to think people have to be preparing for that and uh, knowing that, But the summary is that the Christian Wayfield expects 2018 to be a banner year for Canadian commercial real estate. So good news, good news for everybody.
0: I agree with that.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: the interesting thing that that comes to mind when you, when you mentioned that is the, the number of entrants to the market, right? It it still seems to be, you know, maybe go back, uh, Sam, when you were, when you were starting this project in 2010, 2011 and kind of knocking on doors, there might've been, and I'll make a number up 30, maybe 40, major developers in the city that could do something like this. Maybe that's too high. Uh, but now it feels, feels like there's 70 or 80 or 90, right? Like, you know, you talk to any of these guys finding land, there's 30 or 40 people at every table by making bids and trying to figure out how they can do it differently than the next guy. And much just keep pinching on margins, I guess is the challenging part for you, right? It's not as easy to get to the yields that you're used to five land. years ago. I mean,
0: they don't, you know, land is one of those things, you know, it's the saying goes, they don't make any more of it. Yeah, exactly. And um, and the population keeps increasing and uh, there's not enough product out there. Like Toronto, you know, the reason why I believe the market is so strong is there's just not enough inventory to keep up with the demand of the immigration and the uh, demand of uh, the densities that we're seeing coming from that immigration. You know, there's still a shortage of condominium units. Uh, everyone looks at all these cranes and they're like, oh, I can't believe it. Yet there's still a gap. In terms of the number of units and the immigration and density that's coming in, specifically because of what happened with the Oak Ridge's Marine and the Green Belt and everything else mm-hmm. that intensified downtown Core of Toronto. So um, I, I agree with that uh, statement and uh, and I think the next few years are still gonna be uh, very uh strong in terms of the real estate.
2: You know, it's curious. We used to, you know, talk about the price of real estate and whatever facet, whether you're talking retailer or condos or you know, apartment <coughs> rental or whatever. Uh and is is it sustainable? And you know, I think now the Torontonians look at themselves as a major urban center, as something like a Paris or a Madrid or a Tokyo or wherever. An international city. An international city where the prices in those cities are still much more expensive than they are in Toronto by comparison. We're really cheap if you think about it in that, if you think I, about the city in that light, in that context.
0: I agree with you. I think we're incredibly well-valued. And I think we are, uh, we're undervalued. I think if you look at the context of Toronto's real estate compared to the international cities. I think we're incredibly well valued, and I think the prices are going to continue to rise over time without uh, any question to start to synchronize with what we see uh, in sister cities. You know, especially yeah. Chicago, yeah. which I would consider a sister city. Great to example. Toronto.
1: And the article ends off with a line that would probably be relevant to somebody like yourself opening a sales center this Saturday for <laughs> very high end real estate. It's higher priced trophy assets are going to sell and they will continue to see strong interest. And I'm sure that will happen uh, this Saturday. Sam, Sam, Sam wrote the article by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that article. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well,
2: great, Sam. That was wonderful. Thanks for thank you, sharing uh, your story. Thank you for having um, me. You know, I think we'd like to have you on probably in a couple of years prior to finishing this development and just see what's, uh, what's causing your nerves that, at
0: that point. How many so, gray hairs? I yeah, I was like, going to yeah. say, I didn't, I didn't want to mention it, but yeah. <laughs> look exactly. like at the U S president when exactly. they come in, when, when they, they come leave, in and when they, they like, leave, yeah. they look like they've gone through uh, a life, the whole life cycle. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you to our sponsor. First national. Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, please share it. I mean, even if you're not directly involved in the condo world, this is a super interesting story. So thanks again, Sam, for coming on.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.